Greetings and welcome to the Pure Report. I'm your host, Rob Ludeman, and it is time to bring the orange yet again with our special guest and somebody I've been hunting down for the last month or two, Seth Kinley, principal data architect who covers public sector, but um, you were on a webinar recently around security operations analytics that lots of people loved. So I thought I'd get you out here and have a quick chat about a little bit of conversation. How's it going? How are you doing out there? I know it's busy. Doing well. Thank you for having me, Rob. I'm excited to have this conversation because like you said, it is something new and exciting and that we haven't covered quite yet. So glad to be here. Now, what did you do before this? I mean, people don't just kind of wake up and go, hey, I'm going to be a data architect and get into analytics. And, uh, you know, do you have more of a traditional SEIT background covering kind of the more old school kind of stuff before you jumped into this? Yeah, by and large before, you know, before coming to Pure, I worked at EMC uh, as an Isilon guy, so file has been my history for some time. Before that, I was a contractor to the Department of Defense and Energy installing whatever they happened to buy, so I got uh, a real wide cross-section of different vendors and different technologies under my belt, and then you know, it's really easy to get into security and analytics when you're in the Fed space or regulated industry, and it's really interesting, so it's piqued my interest and that's sort of what has led us here. Why do you find it more interesting? I'm kind of curious about that. I mean, I know it's a it's a rapidly changing space and you look at everything that's going on, there are a bunch of different vectors and, and areas, but what was appealing to you when you kind of jumped in? The fact that really you're taking your data that is stagnant, right? It, it's just persisted and it's out there and you're actually taking it and putting it to work for you, right? One of the things that I've told people is that data sitting is at best underutilized and at worst is a threat, right? It may be data that's spilled where if you're ever audited, uh, you're going to be in trouble, or it may be something that you have the next great, you know, the next great invention or innovation comes out of data you forgot you had. So it's really interesting to take this sort of monolithic warehouse of data or data lake, what you want to, you know, what you call it, depending on the architecture that you like, and then make it work for you. And then the fact that really, you know, as ransomware has become more prevalent, as people start focusing on security, you know, I, I've been banging the security drum much to the chagrin of people I talk to for years, <laughs> saying that it has to be at the forefront. Security should be the first thing you think about, not the last thing you think about. So if you can be secure and you can glean information from doing analytics on your security or your log stash, it's just better for the, you know, for your environment, for the business, and for things in general. It gives you a better utilization of what you already have. Yeah, and I think a lot of the surveys we do, you know, we'll go out to C-levels and VPs and just IT folks and go, you know, what are your top three concerns? And security is always somewhere floats, you know, in, in, in one of the top three priorities. But I think in the last two or three years, we've seen it you know, really kind of go to the top. Um, but with all this data that's been stuck kind of in neutral, uh, why has it been that way? Is, is it that the tech hasn't been able to take advantage and, and speed insights? Is uh, it been a, a, a lag in, in the availability of software to facilitate the ability to, to capture and analyze the data, some combination of both, or am I missing something there? No, I don't think you're missing at all. I think it's a combination of both where, Sometimes data is persisted and that is the mission. Okay, we recorded it, we have it. If somebody asks for it, we'll figure out how to go get it, right? 
And then that sort of changed uh, organically into we have to have all of this data. We have to be able to bring it back, prove that it hasn't been manipulated beyond the shadow of a doubt, and then actually put it to work for us to know if, one, people are doing what they claim to be doing, right? I mean, I don't want to be overtly negative, but we need to have a measurable metric, right? And data is a means of doing that. Okay, you put it out there, does it mean anything to me, right? Um, Just having data persisted no longer sort of cuts the mustard. So it's it's been both, right? We need to have it, but we need to know what we're doing with it, what it's going to get us, and, and whether or not we made, uh, frankly, sometimes a good investment in hardware or whether people have interacted with it. Um, it no longer can persist with, you know, without oversight. That, that's the biggest thing is that oversight uh, and audits have become a huge piece of the puzzle where data just doesn't get to exist. Data has to be accounted for, much like physical inventory. So it's been that sort of paradigm shift. Interesting. Well, and I think it's interesting, coincidentally, too, that, the, the, you know, this whole ransomware thing, and you alluded to it already, has put security, again, more at the forefront. But what are some of the things out there that security operations teams are also trying to be aware of? I mean, it's not just ransomware. That's the one that's popular. That's the one that's in every news story that, you know, if you go do searches and, um, you know, my, my PTS folks that I have on frequently love that topic, right? It's easy to talk about, but there's more out there, right? There's more things that, that, that SecOps teams are looking at beyond just like, what do we do relative to ransomware? What are those things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ransomware is the, you know, it's at the forefront right now, but the things that have always been out there that were maybe, you know, more clandestine or more dangerous, people didn't want to talk about it because they didn't have an understanding. Things like APTs, advanced persistent threats, where there's a concerted effort by foreign nations or organized bodies to basically, uh, make these wildly protracted uh, attacks where you don't know that it's happening or if you do know it's happening, it continues to happen even if you have countermeasures deployed. Things are becoming more, um, people are playing for keeps more. I don't wanna say cutthroat because that, yeah. Sounds, yeah. That, that sounds negative, but you know there are things like advanced persistent threats. There are new zero days that have come out. There are people that otherwise weren't nefarious actors that are buying malware on the dark web and then deploying it, you know, out of a home lab, right? The, the number of combinatorics, the different combinations of, of threats has just ramped up immeasurably lately because of the advent of it being easier and people being opportunistic and saying, I packaged up malware and you can deploy it, you know, at your place of employment, uh, you know, that's the other thing that I've seen is that the malicious or educated insider has ramped up where you have to trust that your employees are doing the right thing, but then be able to verify that they have not done anything overtly or, you know, overtly out in plain sight, uh, negative or covertly negative by being on the inside. So the attack vectors have multiplied the sort of response to them has been stagnant, right? Um, we haven't really innovated terribly, uh, not not us, but the, the market hasn't innovated terribly. Uh, it's been sort of that standard, I'm behind a firewall, I trust my people, 
you know, everything's fine. And it's just no longer the case, Rob, you have to, you have to have forefront security at the forefront and be willing to acknowledge, uh, that it's, you know, a scary environment. Uh, you can't just sit back and hope that you're not affected. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's part of that. It's not a matter of, of if, but when, but also you raise some, some interesting points. I think, you know, a lot of the, the security attacks have become more of a business, right? They become monetized, right? Whether it's ransomware, some of these other things you're talking about, you know, you can, you can go out and I, you know, dark web or whatnot, and you can find things. But the other you raise is really interesting because I, I used to work for, you know, really large uh, SMP server company. And, and we would do audits every year of where the security attacks were coming from. And interesting over the years to find that more of the threats, like a higher percentage were insider, you know, malcontents um, that, that were exploiting, you know, access controls and, and things like that relative to, to the operating system. So great, great um, observations from you there. So then let's step back and look at our security operations team, which, you know, is more of a modern um, advent, right? This is, is probably something we dial back a few decades and, you know, security is a thing, but there's not whole teams, you know, tasked with, with doing that. What kind of things are they doing on a regular basis? Like if you had to look at the, the operational challenges that they're running into, you know, what are those two or three things that, that they're having to contend with and do on a regular basis? I think the probably the largest uh, issue that they've had to deal with is the influx of data. Data is not getting smaller data time to results. You know, nobody is amenable to it taking a week to run a scan or to get a scan back. So there's more data and we need to have results faster. So that's where, you know, the sort of interplay of Elastic Splunk, um, you know, uh, all the different sort of log analytics and SIEM platforms, it's becoming more compelling to take and centralize that data into something that's searchable and you can glean meaningful action out of, right? So you have all the data, okay, now what? And how do I get it quickly? So, you know, more data, faster time to results being necessary, and then Honestly, what's been interesting is I've noticed a, a real uptick in physical security, limiting access to the device, both on layer one, where you can't physically touch it, and then in various layers of the OSI model, where certain people have to have two-form factor authentication, right, to get on the device, even to do, you know, meaningful tasks in the UI. So it's starting to to be more of a brute force approach, right? Brute force is security, just like a yeah. brute force attack is, is an attack. Yeah. Brute force security works the exact opposite way. So I've noticed uh, an, a fewer number of folks that have access to hardware uh, to mitigate that sort of educated or malicious insider, right? If there are fewer people, uh, that's less of an attack vector. If those people have to two form factors so that it is unequivocal as to who did what when, that's definitely better, right? And then using systems to replace people. So something that has been, you know, died in the wool programmed to do this that doesn't require much interaction from individuals, that's where it gets really compelling, right? Set up the system and put the system to work for you. Automation and orchestration are wildly more efficient and have much quicker time to results, right? When we're talking about analytics or deployment, then it does to rely on a team of people. People can certainly read 
those flags, those uh, warnings or those critical alerts, and then act on them. But it's much faster to have systems do, you know, parse millions of lines of code than it is to have somebody going through it with a fine tooth comb, which to your point, Rob, that's what I think the SOC used to do is just look for reds in an event log and then go remediate them. Right. And at scale, you know, you can't have hundreds of people trying to look through distributed logs, but you can have one program doing it and then forwarding you what's relevant. So really, it's the extent that you can automate this, and I assume there's some type of role that that you know artificial intelligence and machine learning is going to play, already is playing in this going forward. But that again requires people to do the training and to, you know, figure out what the algorithms are. But I think we're. It sounds like there is a good extent of automation already in the process. And you mentioned in the webinar it was a really interesting term. You talked about. Um, uh, uh, alert fatigue, right? How do you reduce alert? What is alert fatigue? That was just a fascinating term. What is it related to all those different flags and those alerts that you get? And there's just so many, how do you parse through what actually matters? Right. So uh, alert fatigue is a, a term I coined uh, from the days of being an administrator where you have distributed <laughs> systems and the systems send you alerts and their warnings, their criticals, there's everything in between. And as you have more systems, right, you might be getting it from your storage. You might be getting it from switching, from servers, from physical access controls. And there are only so many color codes and rules that you can set up to try and differentiate your priority zero versus your priority one. So as a person, we get tired. We can only read so much. You've got to get up and stretch, right? And in these large distributed environments, if you're a managed service provider, if you've got hundreds or thousands of systems, if you've got an HPC environment with 10,000 nodes all sending you different alerts. There's only so much that you can parse as an individual. So you want to have a system that you make intelligent enough not to personify it, but you want to set up a set of rules and heuristics where you get alerts that are meaningful and actionable and you cut out the noise because at scale, you're going to have more alerts in any given day in any given hour than you want to go through you certainly don't want to go through them. And then you probably physically can't go through all of them at scale. So make those alerts more meaningful um, as a, you know, as a cofactor of setting up a more intelligent system, better analytics, better alerting to what's really meaningful as opposed to the slew of things that you get if it's an out of the box configuration. So then Okay. Th and thanks for explaining that. I, that was a really interesting term when I, when I heard you discussing it. I want to go back to the data kind of stuck in neutral concept or even historical data. Is there a way now that the technology has advanced, right? I mean, you've got all flash technology and you've got fast time to insights and scalability and parallelism and all those great things that, that we talk about that we do at Pure. Can you actually go back and harness now the historical data to look for anomalies there that are relevant to the things that you're doing in real time. Is that now a potential that you see things happening around? Absolutely. So all things considered, if you have appropriate uh, sort of cycles, compute cycles and networking that's open, you can absolutely go back and get information from data that's been stagnant, right? So a lot sort of in the user behavior analytics space, most people pay attention to it when they turn it on. Right, whether I mean, pick your product for where you're going to turn it on, but it's typically okay. We've turned this on, and we're going to pay attention to what Rob and Seth are doing from this point forward. Yeah, they omit the fact they have two years of what 
Rob and Seth have done that's just sitting in this historical sort of archive or this regulatory compliance uh, repo that they have. And what you can do is actually go back and look at what they've done over that longer period. And it gives you a better insight to what is anomalous based on what they've done over 24 months as opposed to the last 24 hours. So if you have the data sitting out there, you can certainly go back and comb through it and say, oh, turns out that this looked normal for the last three weeks, but based on the last two years, this is actually wholly atypical for this user. So you have this wealth of data that you can unlock just by revisiting what you already happen to have. And you get better, obviously you can trend better, you have a much longer look back window. So for UBA, UEBA, that sort of gives you a really uh, narrowed scope of what is normal for a person. And it goes back to, you, you know, you can take and extend this to devices as well, right? If you saw, you know, a deny hit rate of 3% historically over a month on an ACL or something to that effect, and then you start seeing 6%, 9%, 12%, pick your increment, right? But it starts slowly ramping up and it typically will ramp up on a defined uh, interval, right? So every week, try and exploit it a little bit harder, right? Or try and exploit a different port, a different subset of information. And what you see is your deny count increment up over time. You may see the fact that you're trying, there, somebody is trying to exploit you. And you wouldn't have thought of that because it's still underneath the flag, right? Maybe you have your flag set at 20% denial on any ACL is where you start paying attention, but you don't notice that for the last 400 days, it's incremented a quarter percent every month, right? And that's the sort of long protracted uh, sort of exploits that we're seeing now where it is not instant gratification where you exploit and you take advantage. It's much more of a concerted long-term effort where eventually it's such a trickle that they manage to exploit something and you haven't even noticed, right? Um, we talk about this in ransomware as dwell time, where you don't necessarily see it because it's so clandestine, it's so minute that you may not even know that it's happened. But that's where analytics of data that you already have and your logs can actually shed light on this, is that it's ramped up incrementally for the last six months and I really need to be paying attention to that because even though it's not where uh, I have it flagged to alert me immediately, there has been a persistent uptick, which tells me that somebody somewhere is, has a concerted effort to try and exploit what I've got. Now, is that something that will be automatically detected or does that require some level of human element to go in and, and notice the, the gradual trickle or the thing that's flying under the radar? Is it, is it going to eventually evolve to more of an automated type of thing? Well, it'll eventually be more automated, but yeah. part of what it is, is there's still a human presence to this where we need to, we need to help train, right? It, algorithmic aside, we need to set these sort of variables where we want to look at things. So once you define a filter, once you define what you're looking for, um, it will become automatic but by default, you know, you're going to have to put some of this in and in regulated industry, that's what we've seen people shift to doing is looking at the uptick uh, in denials or uptick in anomalous behavior and putting a pin in that to say, this is something we want to pay attention to. And that's sort of the whole idea of this advanced analytics around security is that 
it doesn't know what it doesn't know. Once again, not to personify the system, but we're going to tell it what to pay attention to and what's relevant to us. The nice thing is that you don't have to do this on your own. There are plenty of regulatory bodies that will actually put out a sort of guide where just like higher education, if you can't top it, steal from them and go out strong, yeah. but cite your sources. Yeah. So look at CIS, look at NIST, look at these different adjudicating bodies and see what they're, what they're paying attention to and then mirror it right to what's important to your environment. So you don't have to start from ground zero. You can certainly get a framework to build upon. And then once you have it, you're going to forgive this, but set it and forget it. Once it's working, get it set up, allow the systems to work for you and give you that meaningful data so that you can combat alert fatigue so that you can combat uh, you know, getting spammed to death by your systems. You know, the the utopia, I think, Rob, is that when you get an alert, you know it's something that needs to be actionable right then. And above and beyond that, once you get the alert, if all the other systems are working in concert, right, you're going to get it and it should already have been remediated uh, yeah. or at least addressed. Even if that is something like, oh, too many denials, uh, go ahead and just shut this port group down you get the alert that the port group is shut down because there was something anomalous on it. And there have been systems that have done this, uh, you know, IDS, IDP, those sort of things have, have looked at it, but it's really, everything is reactive, right? We need to get into the, into the proactive remediation where you see it coming and you're alerted to it beforehand. And that's one of the things that Pure has done in spades with Pure One, Pure One Meta and the like. Now we want to take and help you extend that into your SIEM environment and really take advantage of hardware that you have, of processes that are becoming more ubiquitous. Just turn it into making hardware work for you, making hardware and software work for you. Yeah, it's certainly one thing to get all the alerts, but if you actually have the remediation, and even better yet, if it, if it actually can take action because you've already told it ahead of time what to do, then that's um, that's definitely going to be upside and a much more efficient way of operating. Um, we, you mentioned a, a couple times in the last uh, in the last few minutes or so around compliance and and regulatory um, issues. Are, are are these types of operations is security ops becoming table stakes for meeting compliance and regulatory requirements? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. It is becoming absolutely uh, requisite to bid on things, to be in the environment, to meet uh, sort of the requirements of the adjudicators, um, the big ones being NIST, CIS, et cetera, whether you're in regulated industry, you know, financials, healthcare, higher education, uh, or federal government, it's starting to be the forefront, the absolute focus uh, as opposed to a nice to have, yeah. right? So we're starting to see things like FIPS validation uh, being table stakes, data at rest encryption, use of advanced security protocols within a stack, meaning, you know, Kerberos to include integrity or privacy. We're starting to see, uh, you know, a real uptick in two form factor authentication uh, through, you know, Talus 4 metric, we want to see RSA or YubiKey involved. We have to have a safe boot option on hardware. All of these things that used to be nice to haves are now being inclusive uh, in RFPs and RFQs where you have to have it. 
And not only do you have to have it, but you have to be able to prove it, right? It's sort of that old trust, but verify adage where just because you say you have it is no longer good enough. Um, you know, Department of Energy specifically has implemented a number. They have an entire program around this now that looks at high value assets um, and tries to identify high value assets and then have remediations based on a number of factors. Department of Defense has done similarly in healthcare. I mean, HIPAA, FERPA, JCO, all the things that sound made up unless you're in healthcare, those have been around for years. And I'll tell you this I don't want to be personally culpable for a HIPAA violation, right? Because our storage wasn't secured. That's a huge price tag for each piece of PII that flies out there. And you just don't wanna be in the headlines for something negative. You wanna be in the headlines for saying that you mitigated it mm -hmm. and that you made somebody successful uh, in their mission and you protected the taxpayers, you protected the constituents. You didn't allow the leak. You didn't allow for people to be taken advantage of and show up you know, on the dark web, their, you know, social security number date, uh, social security number, date of birth, right. Credit card information, home address, shoe size, all that's that the stuff. stuff. Yeah. Right. That's what we don't want to see. Yep. Yeah. No, far better to have the, the mitigation story. So let me shift a little, cause I think the, the, the problems are clear and the, the kind of the fear of missing out or, or why this needs to be done. You've, you've elaborated on really well. When you go into chat with, you know, with customers, with enterprises, with, you know, with the government folks that you talk to, what are some of the things that you go in and talk to them about? What do they need to know? How, how, how do you help? And this is beyond just a, Hey, our product is really great. This is, we've got smart people at this company who know this space. We want to help you. And here are some of the, some of the tips and some of the strategies. What, what are those, what are those talk tracks kind of look like? Yeah, I think by and large, it's the fact that it, it's not unknown to us, right? That we eat our own dog food, yeah. so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, we're aware of it. We also acknowledge it. And we're working in concert with them because we're doing the same thing internally. So it comes down to the, frankly, winning hearts and minds, right? You can have technology that is above and beyond everybody else in sort of that environment, but if the people that you're speaking to don't have faith and don't believe it, they may still not choose to go down that route. So it's being that sort of trusted advisor and differentiating, right? We acknowledge this. We're working on it in concert. We also know we have people, you know, for government, we have people that speak government ease that are cleared, that understand what's going on. We have people that came from healthcare, so we know what's relevant to healthcare. We have people that came out of SLED, so we know because we were in your shoes, right? And now we're taking and saying, how do you close down these gaps? Not with a product, right? Yeah. There's always a box, but it's the solution. It's the holistic approach. Here's how we can take and differentiate and give you a package, right? Not, not just a box, but a package of hardware and software that work in concert, with you know, U.S. citizen on U.S. soil support, with a regular release cadence, with an open sort of an open kimono, if you will, of here are the CVEs that we remediate. Here's our Nessus skin, so you can validate what we're telling you. It's just a, a different approach, and I think that that brings a lot to the table in setting people's mind at ease because it's not just a white paper, right? It's not just something that we're parroting back. It's 
believable because we're doing it and because we understand it. That's the biggest thing is that you can't speak to it eloquently. If you're just reading off a white paper, you have to know it and you have to build credibility. Yeah, it is. It is holistic. It is the whole outcome solution approach, but you make a good point too. I just, you know, the, the eat your own dog food or fly your own airplanes or whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> these, are, these are things we've been doing internally and that we've learned about. And, and so much of this, you know, when we go talk to the, the engineering team on the pure one side, you know, they're, they're like, yeah, we, we've been doing this analysis for years and years. We know how these things work. Okay, let's take some of those best practices and then let's go, you know, share what that is. And then it's kind of fun because you actually do at the end kind of have a fun product that you get to go talk about that does some great things when you're talking about expansive amounts of data and the need to scale and, and the need to do things in real time. Yeah, there's still a product that's kind of fun. What what do you like about about Flashblade that that uh, that gets you excited when you get to go talk in this space? Eventually, when you get to that point of the conversation. Yeah, when it comes down to product, I think the most exciting part of Flashblade is the fact that it it is hardware that would have been, you know, if we had Flashblade 30 years ago, NFS would have looked so much different, mm-hmm. right? It, it it's just a paradigm shift in the ideology of what makes a good NAS and and you know, colloquially, I call it not your grandpa's NAS, right? A lot of people have uh, something that they call Flashblade, but it's just so much different and so compelling on how it addresses the problems of parallelism, right? Of performance, of scalability. It took all of the shortcomings inherent in the market, inherent in product, and it, it did them better. It fixed them by and large. And then when you wrap this security blanket around it of the fact that Flashblade now can do Kerberos, Flashblade now has a mature SMB stack. It has all of the Me Too features that for so long people tried to harp on because they couldn't, uh, you know, they couldn't dispel the performance. All they had was FUD. And now that we've taken it and said, hey, we can do all of the Me Too features. Now we're commensurate with all these other offerings and we have the security blanket and we have unparalleled performance plus evergreen and this, you know, the pure methodology and mentality behind it of everybody being so uh, excited to talk about it. It's just, it, it differentiates itself. And that's the, that's probably the coolest thing, not to mention the fact that, you know, we're constantly innovating and just from, you know, just this calendar year alone, we've brought so many things to market that have been asked about for so long and we've delivered them and had a really strong uptick in adoption and then a really good run rate for people being just wholly pleased with it. So you get excited about it. I guess I can't narrow it down to just one thing. There's a lot of stuff that's exciting about it and it really depends on what that customer is most interested in. So you've got to read the room and then go down the path of, oh, this is why this is exciting to you. Uh, because we have that in spades. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, and, and it's exciting. And I'm, I, I love that some of these new, you know, use cases or solution entry points have come along because, and we're, we're almost on the same timeline at Pure. I think you're about four or five-ish years in, right? And I came in coming up on four years ago and, and it was largely... 
hey, this is Flashblade. Let's talk about Rapid Restore, you know, and the and the analytics things were just you know just kind of out there, and now it's really evolved to where this this product has a multi-dimensional fit into so many different really interesting use cases that goes you know beyond restore or how you how you mix those things up or or combining together. I mean, I think the unified fast file and object is an interesting concept, right? Because you know there you do have that that combination of use cases that allows one product to really um, to, to be such a good fit. Um, that kind of final thing, cause I, I gotta let you go. I know it's busy right now. Um, what do you think about pure as a service, right? Is this, is this a space? I mean, if we've got an area where there's a lot of data that's, that's kind of growing is a flexible consumption model, something that's an interesting fit for this, or is this still something that's more, you know, we're going to, we're going to consume it, buy it on-prem, depreciate the asset. Where do you see that shifting a little bit? I do. I think we're actually approaching sort of the inflection point where as a service in an on-demand consumption model is going to become the new ubiquitous means of having hardware brought in. And the fact that it is not a lease, right? The fact that pure as a service is differentiated from most of the other vendors in the marketplace makes it even easier. And it makes it open to those environments where it wasn't traditionally open, that being the regulated industry. You can actually P tag the equipment, right? You maintain physical control and we just take it, you know, we take the onus of your SLA and making sure that it's going to work. I see it being a huge boon for the market and really what we needed, quite frankly, what the industry at large needed was this as a service consumption on demand. Will there still be an on-prem piece? Absolutely. Right. I mean, there's still going to be skiffs that exist. There's still going to be air gap networks, but by and large, a lot of this is going to move to on demand. I need it. I'll spin it up. I'll spin it down. It's going to be elastic scale up, scale back and simplification really. I mean, that's the biggest thing is that it takes what used to be a team of people that had to do work and had to get it spun up and there was a ticket and it took time and it turns it into this instant click, right? I need it now. I only need it for 72 hours. It used to take 72 hours to get it right now. I can have it instantaneously. And I think that's going to be huge. Um, and we've seen that with the sort of the uptick in adoption, uh, the sort of uh, excitement around the portfolio and the fact that we now offer everything as a service, it gives a number of options to leave no workflow and no enterprise behind. So I expect it to just grow. It's a great summary, and uh, I actually coincidentally um, have Roger Weeks from the Pure One team on, who's going to join me later today. And part of what we're going to talk about is the Pure One service catalog that facilitates uh, a number of those interactions where you can much more easily and flexibly consume Pure technology. So uh, that is awesome serendipity that you uh, <laughs> that you made mention of that. Any final thoughts on this space? Where where you see it going? Obviously, it's exciting, dynamic. Um, there's a lot. Here. There's a lot to learn, but um, where do you see this going and what excites you going forward? Um, I, I see it going sort of to a more secure mentality in methodology in the future where uh, things are going to security will be at the forefront instead of it being the, you know, the second or the third thing that comes up in a conversation. It's likely going to be table stakes and what we open with. Um, it is exciting and I do anticipate it changing and evolving as threats change. So it's going to be 
uh, something that you have to continually work at and keep apprised of what is new and what is, you know, the next ubiquitous thing. So get your reading glasses out and get your, your propeller hat on because there's going to be a lot of reading. Uh, there's going to be a lot of innovation. You know, SMB is moving to quick in server 2022. That's, that's a fundamental change in the ports that it runs on, right? NFS 4.2, there's all sorts of new things coming out. So we're going to have to keep working at it. We're going to have to stay ahead of it, right? Because every good guy uh, out there, there's a bad guy or two that's mm-hmm. trying to exploit it. So the biggest part, I guess, I'll leave you with is it's exciting because it forces you to stay sharp. You can't sit back on your laurels. You have to constantly be working and digging. And that's what we're doing. And that's what we have a team of people doing all the time is to try and stay ahead of the curve. So it's like a race, right? Uh, Unknown actors. And you don't know if it's a stadium super trucks behind you doing jumps or if it's an F1 race. All you know is that you have to go fast. Um, So we're going to go as fast as we can, as efficiently and effectively as we can to make sure that we're ahead of that curve. And we are here to help you out there, the listener, to go as fast as you can go. And if you want to get a hold of Seth and chat further, you can find him at skinley at peerstorage.com, K-I-N-D-L-E-Y, and also access the team. Anything to plug you out there on social media, do any blogging, anything like that? It's always a loaded question because some people yeah. go, ah, I don't do that Twitter thing, but I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, but where, where, do, where can people find you? So I'm on LinkedIn at the moment and I will be blogging more. Uh, I just came out from behind the curtain as it were as being a regulated guy. And now that I'm uh, unregulated, Uh you can expect to see me more. I'll start on medium and there will be some blogs on purestorage.com that will have my name appended to them as opposed to a nom de plume from somebody else. Right. Right. So, uh, Oddly enough, Rob, I, I'm going to start doing that in the very near future uh, with the role that I've taken. So nothing as of yet, but uh, look for new stuff, folks. Well, we'll look for new stuff. And as you come up with new stuff, let's get you back on here and talk about any of those new vectors or stories that you have, because I think this is a goldmine of information that we can keep bringing out. And really, as you say, to move fast, you got to stay informed. So uh, I may lean on you a little bit to stay informed in this space because you're just so knowledgeable and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. Looking forward to talking with you in the future. Absolutely. And if you want to check out in more detail and uh, you know, less conversational with some slides, you can go to peerstorage.com slash webinars and look in the analytics space and find the security operations analytics webinar that Seth did. I think it was in late July, like July 29th-ish. So um, check that out if you want to get a little bit more color and have some pictures with the words. But hopefully, everybody, you enjoyed this conversation and learned something really exciting space. We'll definitely have Seth back on. And hey, thanks for listening to this episode. Keep the comments, keep telling a colleague and a friend to listen to Peer Report, and we'll keep having great guests like Seth on the program. With that, we will wrap for Pure Storage and Seth Kinley. This is Rob Ludeman saying, don't look back. Something might be gaining on you. <laughs>